Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men. Today, Dr. Neufeld tackles 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 in a message entitled, Brothers at Law. The relationship of Christians to the culture as a whole, well, that's a complicated matter. On the one hand, we've been called to create a gospel alternative to the cultures of men. But on the other hand, we're called upon to actively bless the culture in which we live. We know that Jesus paid his taxes, and so should we. He taught us to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 urges us to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And then in Romans 13 verse 1, we are told to be subject to the governing authorities. And then in the next verse, we are reminded that the governing authorities have been instituted by God. We're commanded not to resist them, but to obey them where we can. And then after a lengthy discussion, the passage ends by commanding, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You know, in short, Christians are called upon to obey all laws that do not violate our faith, and furthermore, to look to actively bless those who are in authority. You know, that would mean that we become active in supporting the state wherever we can and in the ways that Scripture allows. Now, of course... Because of that, Christians can also take advantage of the benefits of the state. You know, since we pay taxes, we support civic projects, but we also support the police and the system of justice that is a part of the state. Twice in the book of Acts, in in chapter 16 and in chapter 22, Paul makes use of the advantage that he had as a Roman citizen. And in Acts 25, with the Jewish religious leaders demanding his execution, Paul makes his appeal to Caesar, which means, of course, that he makes use of his legal rights, seeking protection according to the means of justice that he had available to him as a citizen. Paul sought to use the courts to his advantage. And Christians today ought to do the same. If we're being unjustly treated, the state, through its system of justice, allows for us to seek protection and redress and demand that our rights under our system of laws and justice be protected. Because we're in a democracy, we we might use our rights to advocate for helpful changes in the law. I know that as a pastor in Canada, I sometimes encountered people who threatened to disrupt our public worship services, and I simply informed them that, according to Canadian law, church buildings are treated as private property, and if that person attempted to disrupt our services, we would immediately call the police. You know, I once used that right when a known pedophile wanted access to the places where our Sunday school children were were meeting. You know, as much as our Bible encourages us to both support the state and to make use of our rights, there are, however, limits that the Bible puts onto the use of these rights. In specific, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 speaks about lawsuits among believers. Let's read today's text. It's taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? 
So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. Now, how are we to understand this and apply this to our day that is today? Now, let me suggest some of the difficulties. I have knowledge of some professional con artists that prey on Christian people. They offer themselves up as Christians and then, after they've swindled Christians out of their money, will argue that they themselves are Christians. Now, are Christians to seek no redress there? And now that I've raised that issue, ought we to have some kind of a test to determine if the individual in question is really a Christian or not? And if not, can we then take them to court? You know, after all, there is no Bible verse forbidding us to engage in a lawsuit with unbelievers. This passage refers only to believers in a lawsuit with other believers. And so exactly where do we draw the line? Now, further matters complicate this even more. For instance, in Corinth, there was but one Christian church. What do we do today after a believer has done business with someone and then is dissatisfied and then finds out that man belongs to a church across town and that he didn't know that up till that point in time? Since he had no fellowship with him and since he might disagree with the theology of that church, how are we to make up our minds? I mean, it's very complicated, wouldn't you say? And then think of other difficult matters. Christian marriages sometimes break down. Let's say there's been a habitual adultery on the part of one partner. Should this then go to the law courts? A Christian employee has a dispute with a Christian boss or a Christian tenant with his Christian landlord. How about unions? Are they to seek no redress? Because if that's how it is, you might say you'd be better served to only do business with pagans. You know, in that way, you could always seek legal protection without all these nasty theological problems. Furthermore, what's to be done when an insurance company may demand that one sue the other in order for the insurance company to legally pay out, as is sometimes the case? What do we do then? Well, as you can imagine, there are many complicated situations that we might ask about. Exactly how are we to understand this Bible teaching and to which cases ought we to apply it? Now, having the answers to this, I fear, has led a great many Christians to simply ignore what's being said. Now, furthermore, we live in a country where lawsuits are common. I've been told that one of the reasons for the high cost of medicine is simply because of the high cost of medical malpractice insurance. You know, we all carry insurance because of lawsuits. If you don't have a several million dollar insurance policy that's attached to your auto insurance, you're being foolish and putting yourself at risk. If you're involved in medicine or business, you carry legal insurance. All churches today that I know of carry some form of liability insurance. Someone may slip in your parking lot in the snow or or feel your pastor's counseling has harmed them, and they decide to take action, so we decide we have to protect ourselves. That's our culture, and it's hard to imagine that in some cases there will be no redress. So before we dig into the details, let's step back for a moment and try to understand the historical background to which this text was written. Let's see what we can uncover. 
Now, in ancient Corinth, we know that civil cases, that is, not criminal, but civil cases, were decided by two magistrates who were elected for one year as officers of record, and they were given authority to act over any lawsuit in the city. Now, the amount of bribes that often took place or crooked decision based on personal friendships, well, these were legendary. And so the courts would be abusive and often give you less than justice. Is this what Paul means when he says, going before the unrighteous? You know, but a careful study shows that this is not the issue at all. In verse 6, Paul indicates his concern. Brothers going to court against brothers in front of unbelievers indicates that the church is hurting her witness in the world. When one believer pursues legal action against another, it appears that the Christian faith offers nothing different in terms of a moral structure than that which is in the wider culture. So there are four principles that I see in this text that ought to guide the dispute between believers. The first principle is found in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Why would Paul call the court system or judges unrighteous? And the answer should be obvious. He's not referring to the moral character of the judges, but their spiritual standing before God. Only in the cross and through the cross can any human being be declared righteous. Paul's not at all concerned that Christians won't get a proper hearing in the courts. He's concerned that the court system itself functions on a different principle than the life of Christ. See, here's how it works. If you go to court, the judge will assess damages and try to redress whatever wrongs were done, but the courts will miss something significant. There'll be nothing about the cross in the courts, nothing about reconciliation, nothing about crossing that great barrier, that divide of woundedness between two brothers or two sisters and learning again how to love one another. Indeed, in this is found the first principle about how to resolve disputes among believers. Your dispute is ultimately not legal. Your dispute is ultimately spiritual. And it's this spiritual answer that only the Church of Jesus Christ with faith in Christ can supply. What is our first responsibility in a dispute with a brother? Well, according to Paul, the dispute is not ultimately legal, but spiritual. So how do we resolve disputes within the church? Well, a great teaching lay ahead. On behalf of all of us at Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, we want to send out our heartfelt thanks for your financial support in June during our fiscal year end. Your gifts have meant so much in helping us finish well and provide a strong foundation for the months ahead. Your gifts make this daily Bible teaching program possible. It allows us to air right across Canada. It provides the resources to sustain our podcast, mobile application, to support the ministries of Laugh Again and our young adult program, In Doubt, and our international programming. None of these ministries of Back to the Bible Canada would be possible without you and your commitment to Bible teaching. So once again, thank you for standing with us and becoming an essential part of our ministry team. For more information about this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Paul calls for a local church to have a dispute resolution mechanism. 
So before we go on, I can't help but, but offer some pastoral advice. This is not the job of your pastor, and that's for two reasons. The first and most obvious reason is that most often your pastor is not in a place where he has the kind of background that's necessary to provide the resolution that is required. And second, your pastor is put in a place where he can be criticized and even fired for how he judges a dispute. And that's especially true when relatives are involved. So a great deal of pressure can be placed upon a pastor that will lead to a great deal of dissatisfaction in the end. A wise pastor will not do this. No, this should be placed into the hands of spiritually mature members of a church, perhaps the elders or others, who both know the word and understand the nature of the dispute, either in terms of business or finance or even legality. But why should a local church do this? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, I know there are those who will say, well, no, actually, I didn't know that the saints would judge the world. I thought was God was going to do that. Well, where does that idea come from? I think this verse seems to surprise many believers who for some reason have never grasped the idea of heaven nor how we are now being trained to rule and reign with Christ for all of eternity. Some of us, I fear, have listened to more stories about golf courses in heaven and beaches and ideal weather and images of perfect motorcycling weather. We have gained more of an idea of heaven from popular mythology than from a careful exposition of Scripture. That's why we don't know how to live well here. So what does the Bible say? Well, for instance, listen to Jesus speaking to his disciples recorded in Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you might say, well, that's for the apostles, isn't it? I mean, what's there for the rest of us? Well, listen to these powerful words in Revelation 2, 26 to 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. See, right now, your life in Christ is a training program for your future. You've been given a high calling, and how you and I handle disputes is a reflection of whether we are submitting to Christ's training program for us now. And, says Paul, right now, as disputes arise within your church, you're given an opportunity to learn to provide the kind of leadership that you're training for in heaven. You see, an unfaithful church will allow disputes to simply carry on without resolution because they have no idea that these disputes are an opportunity for them to learn their high calling. And how high is that calling? Well, listen to verse 3. Do you not know that you will judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, I think the angels spoken of here most likely refer to the fallen angels or the demons. As they seem ominous to us now, the tables will one day be turned, and we will participate in their condemnation. If this is our high calling, then it seems to me that every church should seek to identify men and women among them who can give leadership in dispute mechanisms. 
So in essence, every dispute among believers is an invitation for the local church to demonstrate that she understands her high calling. But as I've already noted, the situation in Corinth is different from our own. What do we do if a dispute develops today between believers who come from two different churches? Now, I'll just say what I think from my vantage point, but for me it seems that both churches may want to set up either an independent group of Christians or an official Christian legal resolution group that deals with these matters. But whatever we do, our track record as a church shows that we have not taken this teaching seriously. We let the courts do what the Bible says we, the church, should be doing. And then, of course, we complain about the courts. Well, this should not be. Now in verses 4 to 5. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, if you're using an NIV Bible, you're going to notice that it states this verse quite differently. Let me read it from the NIV. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. So you see, the ESV says that it's the secular courts that have no standing in the church, and the NIV says that you should appoint people who even have little standing in the church itself. And the problem here is Greek grammar, which doesn't make plain which way we should translate this text. So it's impossible to be dogmatic here. But I believe that Paul meant to say that it was the secular courts with their judges and juries who have no standing in the church. They simply can't lead people to love and reconciliation through the cross. I mean, think about it. They can't resolve your case for your case is spiritual, not legal. What Paul means to say is simply this, if you have a dispute, take it to the church. Take it to people who love Jesus, who have been informed from the wisdom that comes through the cross. Remember what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 1.20? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? There is in the cross a higher wisdom, a wisdom of repentance and of confession and of reconciliation and of discipleship of which the world knows nothing. So let's get practical. What should you do if you're to dispute with someone that might or has the potential of going to court? The answer is, you should contact the leaders of the church. Jesus makes that very plain in Matthew 18. Each one of us should know those three steps. Step one, try to resolve it just between the two of you. Step two, take someone else along so to establish the matter with witnesses. Step three, Take it to the church. Your dispute is an invitation not to the courts, but to brothers in Christ and sisters as well, to spiritually mature people, people of standing within the church who have wisdom in these matters. So we have seen three principles that guide believers in disputes. Remember, it's spiritual. Remember your status. You will judge the world. Remember the discipline procedures defined by the gospel in your church. And now finally, verse 6 teaches us that we are not so naive as to believe that on this side of heaven, there will be no disputes between believers. We don't believe that all differences are easily resolved. But we do believe that if a church is led by Christ, there is a way forward. So let's read verse 6. But brother goes to law against a brother, and that before unbelievers. You know, I can't even begin to stress how important this verse is. 
Years ago, I remember being an observer, and I watched an issue attempting to be resolved between two brothers. We were in stage two of Matthew 18. When you can't resolve the matter, take one or two witnesses along. Well, it turns out that both of these brothers in the dispute were not ready to move in any degree. One claimed that the other owed him several thousand dollars, and the other claimed just as adamantly that he did not. It involved a dispute around a building contract, and as the dispute grew deeper, both threatened the other with court action. Now, I, I was dismayed. This would never be resolved. And furthermore, the church that I was a part of then had, had no means of resolving these actions. And then as the meeting got ever more tension-filled, the other witness, who was a well-to-do businessman, simply pulled out his checkbook and wrote out a check to the one who said he would sue, and he covered all the costs in full. And without even hesitating, I mean, that man took it, stood up, and said he was satisfied. All he ever wanted was the money, and he walked out the door, and I was amazed. And I asked my friend why he, who had nothing at stake in this affair, paid out the full cost. And he told me that in the years that he had been in business, he had watched more than one of these kind of things. And each one of them had harmed the reputation of Christ in the wider community. He looked at me and said, what's a few thousand dollars so that Christ's name won't be harmed one more time? Well, indeed, in this matter that I'm talking about, resolution was never attained. It was left to both brothers to decide whether they would be happy with another man covering the financial dispute. You know, I waited to see if his act of sacrificial love would have impacted the two disputing brothers. Perhaps I thought both men would be ashamed that another cared more about the reputation of Christ than they had, and sadly, nothing of the kind ever occurred. But it reminds me of something very crucial to this entire text. The reason why we don't go to the law courts is because we care more deeply that Christ is honored than that I am fully paid out. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would continue to give your church wisdom to know how to act in such a way that we might demonstrate the wholeness of Christ in all of the relationships that we have with each other. Lord, we commit this into your hands in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for your message today, John. And, and just a quick word, we want to wish everyone out there a happy Canada Day. We are so fortunate and blessed to be in a country where we can worship together freely and proclaim the word of Christ freely. So we give great thanks to our Lord for that. And we just want to thank you again for joining us right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The faithful commitment of ministry friends across Canada is overwhelming. Again, this past June, you have successfully joined with us to accomplish our June fiscal year-end campaign goal, and we're filled overflowing with appreciation. Nearing the end of June, we were also presented with a $75,000 match pledge, and for every dollar given, another dollar was matched to support the ministry goals up to $75,000. Can I let you know that the same group has committed to an additional $75,000 match pledge in July? The summer's often a lean month financially, so your gift matched by this pledge will do so much to begin the new fiscal year strong. All of us working together to support the proclamation of God's Word. Join us with your gift this month toward our $75,000 match by calling 
1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca.